The rest of us are going to be in John chapter 3. We're going to be looking today at verses 22 through 36. Today the passage uh, is about you, more or less. The question is, will you be more or will you be less? Should you be supersized or should you be downsized? Or is it possible that more is less and less is more? What do you think about that? So before we try to answer or give an answer, let's uh, think about the context where we've been in John, uh, at least in the last couple of chapters before we get to our passage today. Now, if you remember, um, in, jo in John chapter 2, Jesus had been in Cana of Galilee, and there he went to a wedding and performed a miracle, turning uh, water into wine. And after that, Jesus went to Jerusalem, and uh, he went there to celebrate the Passover. But when he got to the temple, he found that the, the uh, temple um, courtyards were filled with animals and merchants and money changers. And the righteous indignation in Jesus rose up on how they were misusing God's place of worship, and he drove them all out with divine authority. After that, in Jerusalem, he did many miracles and started to gain a following, and many, many believed in, in Jesus in this very early time. Then there was a man that came to Jesus at night named Nicodemus, and he was a theologian and a religious leader, and he had some questions. He, he wanted to address Jesus, and he, he came to Jesus secretly. Um, he knew that Jesus was from God because of his authority and because of his miracles. And then in an ensuing conversation with Jesus, Jesus explains to him, Nicodemus, if you plan to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Um, how could that be, inquired Nicodemus. Um, Jesus told him he must uh, be, uh, have a physical birth and a physical birth. He must be born of water and he must be born of the spirit, born again. And, and Nicodemus, how do you get that? And Jesus' answer was John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, Nicodemus, that includes you, Nicodemus, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so... Um, we come now from Nicodemus to John the Baptist. We've been introduced to John the Baptist in chapter 1. Remember, um, in chapter 1, in the first 18 verses, it's, uh, it's called the prologue, and it just introduces us to the main themes of the book. And so, um, and let me just say here too, let me just remind us, we have John, the writer of the gospel, who is the apostle John. And we have John the Baptist, and they are not the same people. And I'm going to be referring to both of them this, this morning, and I hope I don't confuse you, okay? 
And so uh, what we find in verses 22 and 26 are both uh, questions and challenges. And I'm going to read just verses uh, 22 through 26 as we get started right here. Now, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. So we have three principles I want us to look at in our passage today. And the first one is this, avoid competition in God's kingdom. Avoid competition. Because you know, sometimes there is competition among God's people. Sometimes people compare themselves with other people or other ministries or other churches or other leaders. Um, avoid competition. And here's the situation in verses 22 through 24. So after this, that, that is after this time with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and he baptized. A couple of significant things here. So Jesus left with his disciples. So been in Jerusalem. Now they're out in the countryside. It's a Judean countryside. And think in terms of Judea as being like the county. It's actually the province that Jerusalem, the city, is in. But it is like the size of Eau Claire County think in terms of that, Eau Claire and Eau Claire County. Um, Jesus spent some time with his guys, his disciples. And, you know, they had a chance to watch his life, to ask him questions, to listen to his teaching, and to see his ministry. Um, but an interesting thing here, it says he spent some time with them and baptized. So, this is the first time we've seen this, and actually John is the only one that records that Jesus was involved in a ministry that included baptism. And um, he's going to mention it here, and, and it's going to be in John chapter 4, 1 and 2, or that we'll see next time. But Jesus and his disciples were baptizing. Verse uh, 23 now, John was also baptizing in Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people, people were coming and being baptized. Now, this is a very unique time in kingdom history. You got John the Baptist, and he is doing what God has called him to do, preparing the way for Jesus and, and uh, baptizing those who uh, have come to repentance. And now... You have Jesus out there, and they're in somewhat close proximity. People are going to John because John has been doing what God wants him to do. But now Jesus is out there too. This, at first, will create some confusion. Um, 
So John is getting people's hearts ready for the kingdom of God and is baptizing them. Jesus is also getting ready, getting people ready for the kingdom of God, and he is baptizing. Now, just for clarity here, this is not Christian baptism. This is before Christian baptism in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus commanded his followers to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a different beforehand, not to be repeated, but this is what uh, Jesus and John were doing. So um, we have a map. Just, you know, you, what's, what's Sunday without a map? And um, so you see where Jerusalem is down in the southern part. You see Jesus was raised up in Nazareth. But somewhere, we don't know exactly where, is Enon, and Salim is just off to the left. The, the word Salim means springs. Um, there was plenty, verse 23, John was also baptizing because there was plenty of water and people were coming. Plenty of water there in, in uh, Salim because there was the springs there. And, you know, why did they need to baptize in plenty of water if they were sprinkling, you know? This is how they baptized. They baptized in the water uh, and by immersion. Plenty of water there. Verse 24, uh, in John, John, the gospel writer, makes a sidebar here. He says, this was before John was put in prison. Now, just think about context here for a minute. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe John the Baptist's ministry. They do not mention the events in the Gospel of John in John's life. John is writing about 20 to 25 years after uh, Matthew and Luke, and maybe 40 years after Mark. And he's and, and he understands that there are believers who have already read Matthew and Mark and Luke. And so he's giving new information. And, and much of the gospel of John is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because John later is including important information that has not been recorded before. Now, he does repeat several different things. But... Uh, many things in the Gospel of John are unique. Um, so, um, John, the writer here, is just mentioning this was before John was put in prison. Within a few months of this time right now, John will be arrested and by Herod, and he will be put into prison. And then he will be executed at a party. And his life will end. That's it. But this happens beforehand. Um, so both Jesus and John the Baptist are out in the countryside, and uh, they're baptizing, and they're preaching about the kingdom of God. And um, these new circumstances with Jesus joining the baptizing and being out there uh, creates a problem, or at least a potential problem. And we see that in verses 25 and 26. 
An argument developed between some of John's disciples, verse 25, and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. So this is kind of a technical issue, you know, one of those religious technical things. There was a certain Jew, we don't know who this is, we don't know anything about him, probably a religious leader, because sometimes when there's a reference to a Jew like this, it means a Jewish religious leader. Um, and pro- likely, and this was common in Jesus' ministry, religious leaders from Jerusalem went out to investigate what was happening, standing in the crowds, trying to see what might be out of line in, 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 in those practices, and uh, ready to uh, call them on the carpet. They're representing the religious system in Jerusalem. And um, so there is uh, a problem about ceremonial washing. So you have John uh, baptizing people. And he's baptizing the people of Israel, Jewish people. And baptism was not practiced for Jewish people before this. Baptism was for Gentile people, non-Jewish people. When they uh, wanted to become a part of the Jewish faith or proselytes, they would need to be baptized when they are brought in to the faith. But Jewish people were not baptized. They did not need to be baptized, according to the system. But Jewish people did practice ceremonial washing. That didn't include necessarily a baptism. But might be washing their hands or washing body parts. or um, It was a ceremony. It was part of it. It didn't actually clean anybody, but it might be a sign of a vow or a commitment. Um, so this argument develops. Verse 26, and so one of the things that's, one of the issues here is that Jesus is baptizing and John is baptizing, and how does that fit into the Old Testament? And um, what's the relationship? Why is Jesus doing what John is doing? Now, verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan... You know, you know the guy, you, that, that man, he, he's the one that you testified about, the one that you've been preparing the way for. Look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. What's that about? That's not fair. He's not supposed to be out here. This is our job. This is what we were getting. We've done the hard work. We've made the sacrifices. We've been unpopular with the Jewish leaders. What, why? Look, there are more people going to him. We're losing people, John. What's going on? Don't you care? And um, jealousy breaks out in John's camp, a spirit of competition. You know, like... Who's the deserving? Who's better? Who's the best? And um, as I alluded to earlier, this happens in churches too. What church is better? Which ministry is better? Which leader is better? 
And, you know, it's good to be um, critical in your thinking, but don't be a critical person. And um, the, the, the important thing here is a competitive spirit has no place in God's kingdom. Uh, this is not what the church is about. This is not what God's work is about. Um, and then we come now, we've talked about the first principle to avoid competition. The second principle is to understand your role in God's kingdom. And this is exactly um, what makes John very a model and very unique. Um, we see this in verses 27 through 30. Understand your role in God's kingdom. By the way, do you understand your role? Do you know why God has you here? Do you know that you were made for God? Colossians 1.16. And you will not find your purpose apart from God. You can... You can choose all the routes you want, ignore God, but you will not find out why you were made apart from God. Um, the, we see the, the principle that is important to John in verse 27. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You know, John uh, the Baptist had walked with God for many years. And this is what he knew. He understood his role. His, his role uh, was given to him by God. And his role was to prepare the way. And his life was simple. He was called out of the religious establishment. His father was a priest. It would have been normal for um, John the Baptist to be a priest waiting in line to serve at the temple in Jerusalem. But God called him out into the wilderness you know, imagine trying to plan a church in the wilderness by preaching. And um, it was a God thing. And, and people came to hear John. John understood his role. Um, we would consider John a poor man by probably any, any standards. Um, his job was not flashy. His, his, his work created a following, but he created a lot of enemies. And, you know, it's going to cost him his life. Not everyone wants to humbly pursue righteousness. John knew that, but that's what John's role was about. He was ordained by God. He was God-directed and God-empowered. He lived a very simple and humble life. And John's preaching ministry was powerful because God was at work in him. And that's how, that's how John wanted it. Now, when it comes to us serving in the church, God has a place for us. He has a place for each of us. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. The, the apostle uh, Paul writes these words. He says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. The same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. We all have different abilities, different natural abilities. You know, 
God, our creator, gave us those natural abilities. But we also have spiritual gifts. Uh, my understanding is that we get those gifts when we place our faith in Christ. And we may not know exactly what they are. Uh, but over time, as we walk with Christ, those gifts begin to surface. And we find areas that, this is, I fit here. This, I find this rewarding. You know, uh, in my story, after I was an atheist till I was 25, and um, I had no desire to, to teach or to speak before people. That was zero desire. I was, I was scared to death, frankly. And, um, but after I became a follower of Christ, God gave me this desire to learn about the Bible and then to share it with others, and it just kept growing. And I would find it rewarding. And I, and I think God was surfacing the, the, the gift of teaching, and he wanted me to plug in there and serve the church. He didn't say I had to be a pastor. I think he did call me to be a pastor. But um, that was a, a gift that I think God... God has given you gifts. There are all kinds of gifts. They're, they're mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians chapter 4, and 1 Peter chapter 4. So God has given you natural abilities, and he's given you spiritual gifts. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says this, All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them, each one, just as he determines. God is the one who determines our gifts. Just because we want one doesn't mean we get the one we want. But that's where we will find our significance. That's where we'll find reward, is serving in the area of our giftedness. And John understood what God had given to him. Verses 28 and 29, this is what John understandings, the understanding. And um, he says, you yourselves, he's talking to his, father, his disciples, can testify that I said, remember this, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. John knows who he is. John knows his role. He is not the Messiah. He's not God's son. And he doesn't need the attention. He doesn't need the acclaim of God's son. He's a servant. He's not the center of the universe. This is kind of an important principle, isn't it? He's not the center of the universe. Jesus is. But sometimes we put ourselves at the center, and we like the world to revolve around us. And we can learn from John. From John, Our job is to follow God's leading, not to tell God what to do. We do that too sometimes. And then in verse 29, John clarifies. He says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. You know, thinking of first century wedding customs and marriage customs. He says, the bride belongs. You know, that's still kind of true today. I hope the bride belongs to the groom. Um, and and um, he got, in referring to the 
bride. We, we don't know exactly what this is a reference to, but when we read the whole context that Jesus uh, continuing here, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And maybe I'll just approach it this way. The uh, friend of the bridegroom, very important here, um, is like the best man. Except in the first century, in the customs, the friend of the bridegroom would spend hours, perhaps days, getting ready for this wedding and a celebration that might last a week. And um, this is a really important role. And um, John is saying that he's the friend of the bridegroom because Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the big deal. John's role is to serve the bridegroom. And who's the bride? Well, it's those people who are coming to be baptized and getting their hearts ready for the kingdom of God. Later, these terms will be used uh, for Jesus and the church. This is not the church. These are those people who are coming and seeking Jesus. And so John says, um, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And so John has heard Jesus, and he knows Jesus is here, the one he's prepared the way for. God's Son is now present. They've been preaching, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the message. Why? The king is here. And John is starting to see the transition of his ministry and he says that that joy is mine and is now complete. This brings John joy, not, not a competitive spirit. It brings him joy. His joy is full. He has been preparing the way for God's son. And now people are beginning to follow him. John's mission has been successful. His role is coming to an end. The kingdom of God is at hand because the king is present. Now think about this. What happens to John? He gets arrested and he's executed as he followed God's leading. It wasn't life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It was dedication for life and death. And I think it's really important for us to see that. That following Christ doesn't mean God's about our happiness. You know that. We just need to be reminded. What John says next is very pr profound in verse 30. It's the divine order. John says, he must become greater and I must become less. Jesus must become greater I must become less. Jesus must become more important, and I must become less important. Jesus must have leadership in my life. He wants all of the leadership in my life, and I just need less and less and less because he is Lord, he is God, and we just need to be reminded periodically that he's God and we are not. Um... If this is your only 
takeaway. Take this one. This is it. He must become greater, and we must become less. Spend your life putting this into practice one day at a time. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. This is what John lived out. This was John's life. Not looking to your own interests, but, to, but each of you to the interests of others. And then verse 5, in your relationships with one another, be competitive. Be more important. Be the most important. In your relationships, have the same mindset as Jesus, the same mind, the same attitude as, as Jesus. Um, if we're to follow Jesus with this mindset, we put others first and we are his servants. This is uh, the mind of Christ. This is... Um, an attitude. This is his choice. He becomes greater and greater influence in my life. More is less and less is more. More is less. Less is more. Because when I make myself out to be greater, I become less in God's side. And when I make God great, and I become less. I become more of who God wants me to be. And I am more like Jesus. And I'm more like John the Baptist. Three principles from John's life. Number one, avoid competition in God's kingdom. Um, we don't have any rivals in the kingdom. We have enemies that are not from God, but we don't have rivals in God's kingdom. Secondly, is to understand your role in God's kingdom. It's God-ordained. Um, you know, I mentioned, I think my role is to be the pastor of the bridge. It's not to be a megachurch pastor. There's a lot of things I could think about that this is not good enough, you know, and, and obviously, it's awesome, and it's really rewarding. There's a place for con a contentment in who we are and what we've been given. And we don't have, we're not given everything, at least in this life. Thirdly, uh, seize your opportunity for the kingdom, verses 31 through 36. John uh, sets now the framework uh, for serving God in his kingdom. And um, verse uh, 31 and 32, he sets Jesus up as the highest authority. Look at 31. The one who comes from above is above all. We've heard this before. The one who comes from above is Jesus, uh, the one from heaven, the one sent by God the Father, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. The one from the earth, on the other hand, is from the earth and belongs to the earth and speaks 
as one from the earth. Humanity is from the earth. Adam was made from dirt. And the perspective we have without God is a human perspective, a limited perspective from life here apart from God. The one who comes from heaven is above all. The one from heaven, God's son, has supremacy over all. This is what Colossians chapter 1 talks about. The supremacy of Jesus Christ. Verse 32, he testifies, that is the one who has come from heaven testifies to what he's seen and heard. Jesus communicates to us what he knows about the Father and heaven and spiritual reality and what life in the kingdom is all about. He testifies to what he's seen and heard. And then he says, but no one accepts his testimony. No one accepts his testimony. And that's probably uh, kind of like a hyperbole where you overstate your case because that's not what he means because he's going to change it in the next verse. And uh, by the way, that's what we see in uh, John chapter 1 in the prologue. Uh, Listen to verses 11 and 12 in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, verse 11, he came, this is Jesus, came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. None of them? Verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, there were some, to those who believed in his name, that's how they received him, he gave the right to become children of God. He came to his own people, the nation Israel, and in general, they did not receive him, but some of them did. Some of them believed, and some of them received him, and they became children of God. He testifies to what he's seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. And then we do see that there is a group who has accepted, verse 33, that's what John indicates in chapter 1. Whoever, verse 33, has accepted and is certified, excuse me, whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. The disciples accepted Jesus' testimony. Many others came to believe and accepted the testimony of Jesus and his authority. All the disciples would become apostles and leaders in the church and some of them writers of the New Testament. And they certified that God is truthful, that Jesus is truthful. My question is, is can you certify that Jesus is truthful? Are you confident in that? Do you trust that God is truthful to you? Do you trust God's word? Do you embrace God's word in following Jesus? Or do you pick and choose those things that you are like and you're comfortable with and those things that you maybe don't like, you just ignore Can you allow God's word to have authority over your life? Because that's what it takes for Jesus to be your Lord. Finally, the most uh, trustworthy credibility in verses 34 and 35 is Jesus. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives him the spirit 
without limit. One who God has sent is Jesus, and he has the power of the Holy Spirit without limit. And um, back when he was baptized, there was a symbol that came from heaven, a dove, something that looked like a dove and appeared and came and settled on Jesus. And it was for us to see the pleasure of God and the Holy Spirit on the life of Jesus. In verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Uh, the Father certifies that the Son is truthful. God the Father has placed all of his authority. He's pleased with the Son. All authority into the hands of his Son, Jesus. And there is no higher authority than Jesus Christ. And I love that passage that was read earlier during worship from Philippians chapter 2. There's a day coming when all of the universe will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and they will worship and they will bow down no matter who they are, whether they are almost forced to as unbelievers or whether they bow in humble adoration. And then if we're going to seize the opportunity, the opportunity for God's favor, we see in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. This is God's favor. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. And here's the truth. Here's God's offer. It is life or death. Whoever believes in the Son, Jesus Christ, has eternal life. And that's that means right now. That's its present tense. It's whoever. It's for any person. And if they believe right now, they have eternal life. And if you believed when you were six years old, you were given eternal life right then. It doesn't start when you die. It starts the very instant you place your faith in Christ. It's a new life. It's eternal life, but it's a quality of life. It's a spiritual dimension. It's being born again and having a being born of the Spirit connected to God in a spiritual way through Jesus Christ. And with this life comes uh, forgiveness of sin, and it comes with help for every day of living. Every day helping each of us become who God wants us to be. But notice the last part. Whoever rejects the Son, and sometimes... We just read right over this. Who, whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Why? For God's wrath remains on him or her. That's the status of humanity apart from Jesus Christ right now. Wrath is a state of judgment to come. God's whole, God is a holy and righteous God, and he must not be in the presence of sin, and he must bring judgment to sin. 
That's why Jesus came in the first place. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was because of his love. Jesus took our place. We deserve that death. And God's requirement is to believe. Believe in the Son. To believe means to, to have faith in. It means to trust in. It means to rely upon. The same thing that Jesus told Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Um, can you rely on Jesus to save you from the penalty of your own sin? That offer is good for every person today. And if you have questions about this, I'd love to talk with you. Any kind of questions. It's one of the most important things I get to do is to talk about what God has done for us. If we're going to seize the opportunity, what's the opportunity for the church? It's this. We have a life and death business. We uh, can offer to life to people who don't know Jesus yet. Some of those would be family members, maybe. Some of those are friends, maybe. Some of those are co-workers or classwork, uh, classmates. We have a life to offer. And we sometimes forget that right now they are under God's wrath without hope, apart from finding out who God is and what Jesus has done for them. Our mission is to help people connect with God, and to develop them into fully devoted followers of Christ. And we need to seize this opportunity. So what's your role? Do you know what you should be doing to serve God and how we go about it? As we become fully devoted followers of Christ, more is less and less is more. Let's stand and pray. Father, uh, thank you for um, John's gospel and uh, getting a glimpse into the character of John the Baptist. And Lord, someday uh, maybe we'll get to meet him face-to-face. -face. Um, he was an incredibly godly and humble man and a great role model for us. And God, I pray for all of us that um, if we're Christ followers, that we would um, seek to walk with you and to be humble before you and to allow you to increase and that we would become less and less. And God, I pray for those who may not know you yet. God, that you would work in their lives 
and continue to draw them to yourself and um, prompt them, God, to reach out to you and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you uh, for the privilege to serve you in Jesus' name. Amen.